From page two, from page 1029 uh, in your pew Bible, the NIV, I'll be reading from John 2, 23 to 315. And in them, uh, we're going to listen to the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. John 2, 23 to 315 from the NIV, page 1029 in your pew Bibles. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit." How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to remind every person here of that moment when they were wandering far from you. And you sought them, and you bought them with your blood. That's the message we proclaim to each other, and we proclaim to every person. That you want all to follow you. You want all people to know the cleansing of your blood. You want all people to know the beauty of being a Christ follower. Even though it can cost us everything we have everything that doesn't matter. So Lord, help us as we continue this pilgrimage, people bought by you and who want to follow you and are walking in a world that really doesn't want to hear much about you. Help us with that tension. Help us to be people of grace, mercy, justice, people of light, people of salt, people of kindness. Lord, we pray these things. We pray especially that you will be with Pastor Mark as he reflects on this ancient but important gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Thank you, Neil. I'd like to begin by adding my welcome to all of our listeners, whether you're here in person or you're here on the, oh, there it is, you're here on the live stream. You are welcome and you are wanted. But most of all, I hope that you and yours find here and in us a safe place with safe people to meet Jesus Christ and be changed forever. I especially want to welcome warmly and personally those among us who do not yet count yourselves among the membership of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to be clear, I'm not merely or even primarily talking about those who don't count yourselves members of our local church called Bethesda necessarily, although you too are very welcome wherever you consider your church home to be if you have one. And also, please don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm very happy when the number of our membership grows, and I'm very sad when it shrinks. That much is true. So if you're here, a Christian, and you don't have a church home but need one, and we all do, we welcome you too. But in this case, this morning, I want to especially and warmly welcome those who do not yet know Jesus. You've never heard his voice, and you've never known his love. Perhaps you're hearing his quiet, still voice for the first time, and that's why you're here. Or maybe you once were convinced you'd heard Jesus' voice. You started to walk with him, and you turned away for whatever reason. Whatever may be your particular case, we want you to know that you too are welcome here, along with everyone else. This morning, I'd like to begin talking about true biblical Christian discipleship. And I'm aware that that might not warm the cockles of your hearts, even if you know what a cockle is. But I'm hoping and believing by the end of our brief time together that will change. Now, as we mentioned earlier, you have there in your bulletins on the upper left-hand corner on the inside what I call the central truth of our message from God's word for this morning. It's normally a one sentence or so statement of the key insight or key truth from the Bible text that we will take away from the sermon, or at least we hope to take away from the sermon. Here it is for this morning. True biblical Christian discipleship is a life continually transformed by God's word and spirit into the image of God's son. So let's look at these parts just briefly. True, that implies there is such a thing as false, doesn't it? But we're talking about true, according to what? According to the Bible, true biblical, also in practice, so not only in, a, in, in, in God's word here in scripture, but also in our practice. So true biblical Christian discipleship is a life. Neil mentioned earlier, one person at a time. This is how we come to Christ. One person at a time as God draws us to himself by the Holy Spirit. So true biblical Christian discipleship is a life continuously transformed. I almost put in there increasingly, but I'm, I'm not sure that that is a good witness from Scripture. Yes, we do increase in, in depth and in character. At some point, though, we plateau out, don't we? We, we reach our, our potential and we don't grow much anymore after that. 
But we can continuously be transformed, living a life that is not what it used to be. And we, we continue to be not who we should be, but we've been transformed. And that is ongoing continuously by God's word and spirit. Together, God's word and spirit meet in our lives and spiritual fruit is born and is manifested out. And we are ultimately changed and being changed and will be changed into the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And it starts this transformation of a life. In every case, for every person who ever came to faith in Jesus Christ to follow him as Savior and Lord and receive eternal life, because Jesus Christ is eternal life, true biblical Christian discipleship begins with hearing Jesus. Hearing Jesus. Now, mind you, I didn't say hearing about Jesus, though that's very important and often a necessary beginning and a bridge to hearing Jesus. We're not even talking about listening to Jesus, which also is an important and often necessary beginning and bridge. But if we just look at the Gospels, where Jesus was teaching all the time, most of the people who were listening to him did not follow him. So we're making a distinction here between listening to and actually hearing that then translates into change of our lives. But to be very specific, biblical, Christian, and hopefully spiritual this morning, we're talking about hearing Jesus. And not only once or twice, but for a lifetime or even an eternity. Now, I know that there are many great and moving stories, especially in the Muslim world, of people first seeing Jesus before they ever hear Jesus or even know who he is. And I don't doubt them. That doesn't mean every sensational story is true necessarily, but there are just too many independent stories of God's grace through a vision or a meeting with Jesus as the first conscious contact with him and lives are changed forever. But at the risk of muddying our biblical Christian spiritual water even further, I want you to know that I am not even talking here about hearing Jesus' literal voice necessarily. I'm not even talking necessarily about a thrilling out of this world and body experience that we can tell everybody about and they will be wooed and wowed because it's sensational. Both historically and biblically, we know that Jesus who is God's eternal word made flesh, speaks in a variety of ways and through a variety of means, including and especially God's word written by and the truth of which is revealed to us by his Holy Spirit. The Bible is not only our guide, but also it is God's word to us in both authority and in and for our practice. So what I'm talking about this morning, when I encourage us all to hear Jesus as the first step in true biblical Christian discipleship is first, asking Jesus to speak to you as an individual. Asking. This is one prayer we know that he will fulfill. Asking Jesus to speak to you as an individual, to you and to your family, as well as to us as a congregation, let's ask Jesus to speak to us personally, clearly, and decisively. 
Secondly, listen for his voice. Now, sometimes I have to admit, and this happens in my family and all my girls will tell you this. Sometimes I ask a question, but I don't listen for the answer. If we're going to hear Jesus, we need to ask for him to speak to us. And then we need to wait patiently and listen for his voice. Listen for him to speak to us. And that is perhaps increasingly difficult these days because there's noise everywhere all the time. Thirdly, to hear his voice by whatever means he chooses to speak. Don't put him in a box thinking that he's only going to speak to you in a, in a, in a particular way that you prefer. Jesus often speaks through other people. He speaks to me all the time through other people. And I know that it's him. Because they didn't know what I was dealing with and they spoke right to it. He speaks through the Bible, of course. He speaks through godly counsel in the church. He speaks also through circumstances. Sometimes it's not rocket science to know what the right thing to do is. It may be hard, but but it may be clear right in front of us. And we need to do that thing. Or not do that thing. So we ask Jesus to speak, we listen for his voice, we're patient and we're expecting him to actually speak, we're hearing his voice by whatever means he chooses to speak, and fourthly, to obey him no matter what he says. Now, we also always, always need to keep in mind that that he'll never speak contrary to his previous written word ever. God does not speak with a double tongue. He always speaks consistent with his character and with his revealed word. So once again, we have boundaries, if we can put it that way, fences that the Bible sets out within which he relates to his people. And his word in scripture is the most important, and he uses other means by which to speak to us concerning his will, his ways, his word uh, for us over the next while. So over the next four weeks, I'd like for us to plumb the depths of chapter 3 of John's gospel, something that is rather rarely done, actually, and ironically, because of its most famous verse, John 3.16. So I'd like to do in four complementary parts, which might look something like this. This week, today, true biblical Christian discipleship, hearing Jesus. And we'll look at John chapter 2, verses 23 to 3.15. Next week, we'll look at believing Jesus, John 3.16 to 22. Week after that, the first Sunday in, in October, we'll look at obeying Jesus from John chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. And then uh, the, the first Sunday... Uh, the second Sunday, rather, of October, which is Thanksgiving Sunday, we'll look at trusting Jesus from John 31 to 36. So, so that's uh, a bit of an introduction to our little, I'm calling it a sub-series here, within the greater series that we've got going on, persevering uh, by faith and hope in Jesus Christ. Um, let's, let's pray once again, just briefly, that God's word and spirit would reveal God's son to us this morning. Lord, I need your help. I said to Yuri on Friday, I need a miracle, but that's always true when we're preaching your gospel. It's always true when we open your word and try to speak it in some way that will be 
helpful, coherent, understandable, true. Lord, I pray that for every person within my voice, whether we're here in person or we're on the live stream, whether it's today or on the live stream tomorrow or next week or next month, next year, I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your gospel, which is that Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and Jesus is, is now, right now, at your right hand, interceding for us, praying for us, in fact, all of your saints, your holy ones, your children, uh, until he comes again. Thank you, Lord, for your ongoing provision for us, most especially in Christ. And we thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen. It is perhaps ironic that a study of John 3 would begin in John 2. But we've noted many times from this pulpit that often the context of a verse or, or, or a passage or a text, and when I, when I say context, I mean what comes before it and what comes after it, even the message of the whole book in which it occurs is often essential to understanding each and every other discrete part of the text. In other words, Scripture best interprets Scripture. And knowing what came before and what goes after puts it in place so that we can understand it more accurately. We might even say that knowing your Bible requires knowing your Bible. Or knowing our Bible requires knowing our Bible. But if you're here or there and you're more flailing than swimming in the text and you're about to go under because it's just too much, or you're way behind, let me encourage you, you are in the right place. The only way to get to know our Bibles is, over time, to be in our Bibles consistently, regularly, Sunday mornings, maybe even midweek Bible study, follow a biblical daily devotional perhaps, maybe in a personal Bible study with somebody else. But little by little, we learn and we grow and we understand, and the Holy Spirit helps us with that. So let's move now to our text from the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 2, specifically verse 23, and we'll hope to continue on through chapter 3, verse 15, as Neil read the text uh, just a bit ago. Now, the first thing I want us to think about as we look at these last three verses in chapter 2 of John's Gospel is this. Jesus knows what is in our hearts and minds before and better than we do. Jesus knows what is in our hearts and minds before and better than we do. Put it another way, one of the fundamental reasons that we can and we should trust the Bible's testimony concerning our need for Jesus is that Jesus knows our need. He has fulfilled our need. And he has loved and he loves us despite knowing precisely who we are. Now this knowing that Jesus does is not some kind of mind-reading parlor trick 
He knows us and he knows what is in us because he created us. He is the one and only sovereign and omniscient Lord, and he has come to rescue us from our own selves, our own sin, and the wrath of God that condemns sin that Jesus took upon himself on the cross. Now, let's look at the text, which begins for us this morning with chapter 2, verse 23, to the end of the chapter, which is verse 25. Watch, follow along. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, so it'll be a little bit different, but not that terribly different, I don't think. Verse 23 of chapter 2 of John's Gospel. Now, when he, speaking of Jesus now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So it's very important for us to understand as we we begin here this morning that Jesus knows what's in our hearts and minds before and better than we do. So as we embark on an exploration of the most famous words ever spoken of the most famous human being who ever lived, Jesus Christ, the bottom line is that he knows you and he knows me, and not only in terms of general predictable human character and behavior, he knows us individually by name. Not that he necessarily named named us, so far as I can tell, he was not consulted when my parents named me Mark. They certainly didn't uh, consult him when they named me, my middle name, Leroy. Where did that come from? They they don't know. They have no idea, right? It sounded good at the time, I guess. Um, uh, But he, he, he knows me by name, however I got that name, and he knows you by your name, however you got your name. He knows what's in our hearts and minds, and he still loves us. That's the gospel. I've got to keep moving, but I don't want to leave this without doing my best to get you to hear something essential, something biblical, something eternally true. And here it is. This is kind of a summary statement of what we're talking about these days. God in Christ Jesus doesn't only know us, he loves us for who you are or who we are, which is, a, which is a human being created to image him, to bear his likeness, and to represent him on the earth in our place and time. And because he loves us, he's done everything he can to save us, to reconcile us to himself and to each other, and ultimately to bring us home to enjoy his presence forever. So he doesn't only know us, but he has also stepped into our situation to bring us back to him, to reconcile us to him and to each other. He knows us, he loves us, he saves us. So Jesus knows what's in our hearts and minds before and better than we do, and still he loves us. The second thing I'd like for us to look at as we continue on here this morning, this, this is uh, important, and it probably is the most helpful thing that I'll say this morning. A personal encounter with Jesus is a face-to-face encounter with God. 
who is in himself the way, the truth, and the life. A personal encounter with Jesus is a face-to-face encounter with God who is in himself the way, the truth, and the life. And of course, we're going to look in these several verses here and see that the one who is in the moment, as recorded in Scripture, who is having a face-to-face encounter with Jesus is Nicodemus. And by everything we can tell, Nicodemus is being drawn by the Holy Spirit to faith in Jesus. We find him at the end of the gospel being uh, an integral part of the burial party, if we can put it that way, of Jesus. And Jesus even was buried in his tomb, so far as we can tell. And uh, so Nicodemus, significant character, but we get on the on, kind of on the front end of his journey to faith in Jesus here in these few verses. Later on, as recorded by John in chapter 14, Jesus makes this point explicitly that that a face-to-face encounter with him is a face-to-face encounter with God. In verse 6 of John chapter 14, he uttered some of his other most familiar words when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's don't miss that I am statement. Because it's so familiar as to miss its profound meaning if we're not careful. Jesus is saying, I am the great I am. And he makes several statements throughout the Gospel of John in particular, where the the, the Jews listening to him know exactly what he's saying. And we need not to explain it away. He is saying, I am the I am. Before Abraham was... I am is one of those statements. Here's another. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let's not miss this profound meeting. Jesus is saying, I am the great I am. And because I am the great I am, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other I am he. Even later than that, in his first general letter to the church, written somewhat near the end of his life, the Apostle John wrote by the Holy Spirit and from his own memories about Jesus Christ, the same John who wrote, wrote John the gospel, John's gospel, this Jesus Christ whom he had seen, this Jesus Christ whom he had walked with and known, at the very least during Jesus' public ministry, but probably before that even. Uh, They may have been childhood friends. They certainly were very close. And uh, John was, uh, so by all accounts, scripturally speaking, Jesus' best friend, best human friend on this earth. Listen to how he opens his first letter. That which was from the beginning. So, I want you to look at that text. Every place you see red, that's a direct reference to Jesus. In every one of those references, we could actually say, the text says which, but we could actually say who. Or it says it, and we could say who or him. Direct references to Jesus every single time. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, 
which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it, we've seen him and testify to it, him, and proclaim to you the eternal life who that's actually in the text, the who part, was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Turning back now to our text in John's gospel, a a religious ruler, a a Pharisee, who quite clearly knows that his religion about God is and always has been insufficient. He encounters Jesus here and he does so deliberately. I say deliberately because he sought Jesus out, albeit at night. He is, in a sense, pursuing Jesus. He's not doing it in, in a marketplace by light of day. He's not doing it in in a confrontational way. He's not doing it to score points with his pharisaical brothers. He is doing it because he's seeking Jesus out. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi... We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what I'd like for us to to consider here this morning is the same words that Jesus shared with Nicodemus, lovingly, gently, truthfully, he also shares with us. No one can enter God's kingdom except he or she be born again. Now, it's very, it's very interesting, I think, uh, that one of the themes that shows up over and over and over again in John's gospel shows up right here in these few verses. And that is the distinction between light and darkness between day and night. In John's gospel, he continually contrasts the light with the darkness, the daytime to the nighttime. And he uses these uh, as metaphors for where a person is. And so when he says that Nicodemus came to him at night, he, he, he certainly means that he came to him after the sun went down so that he could do so secretly, so that he would be less likely to be sussed out by his pharisaical uh, partners, and that he could perhaps have an audience with this Jesus that he has heard about, that probably he has listened to at, at, in other occasions, and he could do that without being harassed or endanger his status among the Pharisees. Now, that certainly is true, and so John says he came to Jesus at night. Why? Because he came to Jesus at night. But there's another Uh, metaphorical sense that we also should take note of. And that is 
Nicodemus had not yet come to faith. He was still in the darkness. He was not yet standing in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus receives him. Openly, gladly. And he begins to have a conversation with him that is clearly a loving conversation, that is clearly a truthful conversation, one that perhaps Nicodemus never expected, but Nicodemus is there and he is now engaging with God himself face-to-face in a conversation about his being in the darkness, seeking the light. And so we also see from our text here that a personal encounter with Jesus is a face-to-face encounter with God who is in himself the way, the truth, and the life. There's a third thing that I'd like for us to think about here, and this is three out of four, so we're, we're, getting, uh, we're making progress here. The third thing is this, and we'll pick this up at verse four. The new and transformative birth in the Holy Spirit is the one and only test that eternal life, which is the personal presence of the risen Christ himself, has come. When I was a kid, I was in a denominational church in the States, uh, now almost entirely liberalized, um, but, but there was our little local church in rural Indiana, and uh, I went through a process called confirmation. And at the end of confirmation, you were essentially declared to be a follower of Christ. You'd gone through the confirmation, you'd taken in all this information, you'd been able to be reliable to come to the classes, and you were now received into the membership of the congregation and presumably uh, a follower of Christ. Well, I wasn't. I finished that up probably a little bit early, uh, considering my age at the time. I was 13 or 14, I guess. Um, I even got baptized by, by uh, sprinkling. Um, but I wasn't a Christian. In fact, I wouldn't be a Christian for another 15 years or so. I, not, not until I was 29, or almost 29. We are not saved by any ritualistic thing we do. We are not saved really by anything we do. And the only biblical test that I know of is the presence of the Holy Spirit in an individual's life. It's not knowing our Bibles. It's not being a member of a church. It's not walking an aisle, filling out a card, saying a sinner's prayer. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. And and here we see here in this text, the new and transformative birth in the Holy Spirit is the one and only test. We could turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 16 or so, and see the same truth that eternal life, which is the personal presence of the risen Jesus Christ himself, has come. It's not religion, Christianity, or otherwise. It's not local church membership, Bethesda, or otherwise. It's not philosophy or doctrine, Reformed, Arminian, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, which, whether that orthodoxy is historical or Greek or Russian or Ukrainian. It's not Stoicism, Epicureanism, Hedonism, Libertarianism, or otherwise. It's not politics, whether Republican, Democrat, Liberal, PC, or great tea drinkers. We all must come to grips with, whether joyfully or reluctantly, that there is but one way. 
And only one way back to God. And the reason, if we're looking for logic, which is found in the text of Scripture, is because there was only one God who gave himself up for us in the person and the body and the spirit of Jesus Christ. He himself is eternal life and the only way to God. And he is manifested in, and he is manifested on this earth perfectly in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, all of that is absolutely true, and we can take it to the bank, as Tony Beretta used to say. I know, I know I'm, I'm dating myself because most of you never heard of Tony Beretta. Look him up. It'll be worth your while. Although Robert Blake didn't do well later on in his life. But it's a great show. Even so, we do have to make one concession before we read into the text something that doesn't belong there. When Nicodemus approached Jesus, obviously Jesus had not yet gone to the cross. He had not yet died for the sins of the whole world, according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And therefore, Jesus had not yet been raised from the dead for our or Nicodemus' justification. The point I'm making here is that Pentecost had not yet happened from the perspective of our text. And therefore, the born-again aspect of Jesus' teaching was still to come largely. That's not to say Jesus couldn't dispense the Holy Spirit on an individual basis. He could, and he did. Such anointing had gone on from the beginning of the history of Israel as prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with the Holy Spirit to serve in their offices, or the Holy Spirit was removed from their access because of their sin or rebellion against God. We we, we can think of Saul in that regard as probably the most famous or most familiar. But Jesus had also done this, that is, anointed his disciples with the Holy Spirit. In John 20, we read, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Here's the purpose. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Don't miss the I am statement there, but we'll continue on. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So let's look at our text, John 3, verses 4 through 8. Nicodemus said to him, said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's a a fairly big question. What does the water stand for here in the phrase, the water and the Spirit? Uh, and there are basically two possibilities. One is the water, uh, waters of baptism, that one comes to life or is born again by baptism and the Spirit combined together in the life of a believer. I think, though, it's, it's, it's more simple than that. I think this is probably speaking of the natural birth that happened with every human being and the water that breaks before a human being is born. And that then kind of ushers him or her into the, to the living world in a human sense, in a natural sense. And then he's talking about the second birth or a new birth by the Spirit. Those two things seem to be in tandem here. And I believe that's probably what he's talking about. 
I know that some, some folks get exercised about this. It's got to be the waters of, of baptism. But then we have to ask the question, does baptism save us? There is one passage that, in, in Peter's letters that says that exact thing, um, but nowhere else in Scripture. So, so I think he's talking about there's natural birth and there's spiritual birth. And the one happens for everybody who is born. The second only happens by God's grace. I think that's what Jesus is teaching here. But uh, we, we shouldn't be too dogmatic about it. Um, because you'll remember, Nicodemus had just asked, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... You cannot enter, or he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh, I think pointing back to natural birth of every human being, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And he's teaching there, I think, simply... We, once we were born again, we are now available to and useful to the Lord God going wherever he leads us to go, even if it's Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, right? So I think that's what he's teaching there. So we are, we are now open because we are, we, are, we are citizens of God's kingdom. We have been born again. We are no longer merely of this world. And we are, we, are, we are useful to him and available to him to go anywhere he wants us to go to share this message of the gospel. I think that's what he's saying here. So the new and transformative birth in the Holy Spirit is the one and only test that eternal life, which is the personal presence of the risen Jesus Christ himself, has come. Finally, number four, and last, you'll be happy to, to know. I'm a little dry here. Eternal life... That sounded like I was a teenager, didn't it? Eternal life can only come and will only come, and this understanding also, by way of the Holy Spirit. Eternal life can only and will only come by way of the Holy Spirit, and understanding this also comes by the Holy Spirit. In other words, from heaven, as Jesus put it to Nicodemus. Look with me at the text and we'll be done here for this morning. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So it it sounds on the one hand, perhaps that Jesus is being very gentle and open and welcoming of Nicodemus earlier on and it sounds like he's getting a little tough on him here and I I think he probably is a little bit but it's because he loves him and he wants him to know that this this conversation is pivotal this is an existential conversation uh, between him and Nicodemus Nicodemus needs to understand which I, I think he already suspects I think that's why he's there with Jesus after dark probably by himself, or at least none of his religious partners are with him. He suspects that there's something deficient in his practice and his belief, and he, he wants to see 
what's going on here with this Jesus of Nazareth? Um, and so Jesus, I think he turns up the heat a little bit on him here, but he's still very gentle. And I think this is a pattern. Whenever we're seeking God, Jesus is so gentle with us, inviting, drawing, not pushing, not pulling, drawing us to himself, uh, knowing that uh, if we belong to him, we in fact will come. He's also saying to Nicodemus, I understand that your religion teaches you nothing about this. You have no experience here. You have no knowledge of this. Nobody talked you about the presence of the Holy Spirit before. I understand that. You're, but, but understand that the, this is a very basic issue. And yet you, a ruler of Israel, know nothing about it. So open your mind. Open your heart. And respond in faith. Verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you did not receive our testimony. He's he's talking there, I I don't think only to Nicodemus, but also to the Pharisees in general. When he he uses the you, I think he's probably using Nicodemus as a representative of a larger group. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, I think that earthly thing goes right back to the not entering a mother's womb again being born of the water and of the spirit. I think that's what he's talking about here. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And here, this is his favorite phrase of himself, the son of man. Jesus uses the phrase, the son of man, more about himself, reflexively back to himself than any other, uh, we could call it title, or um, um, uh, identification. In verse 14, it it seems a little strange, but it it will be very familiar to Jews. Because there there is a story in the Old Testament about the Jews being overrun by poisonous, venomous snakes. And they receive the instruction that as this pole... Some have suggested it's a cross. There's nothing in the text that says that. But this pole that on the top of it is an, 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 an image, a representation, a sculpture of a snake. And if you don't look at the snakes below, but you look at the snake here, the object of promise, you will not be bitten and you will live. That's what he's referring to here at the end. And the point is faith. Trust, believing God's word for you, even though you have snakes crawling around at your feet, look at the snake on the pole and you will live. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness for people to look at and not look down to see what's going on down there, but trusting God and looking at that snake that's that's lifted up, so must the son of man be lifted up. This definitely is a reference to the cross. That whoever believes in him, so we're looking there and not down here uh, at our circumstances. See the parallel here? We're looking to Jesus at the cross. This does not mean that, that we ought to have Jesus up there on the cross like the snake was on the, on the pole. Uh, that's a longer discussion. 
um, we believe in an, in an emptied cross because Jesus is no longer up there. And it is finished, right? It is finished. What he came to do is finished. And then he says in verse 15 that whoever believes in him, that is in the Son of Man, who is Jesus Christ, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Eternal life can only come and will only come, and understanding this too, by way of the Holy Spirit, who comes from heaven, as Jesus put it, to Nicodemus, even though he was still in the darkness. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask you to allow us to understand your gospel. Indeed, I ask you to allow us to hear Jesus. Just as Nicodemus was face to face with him here, we are able in this life, in this time, in this place to hear Jesus. Speak to us, Lord. If we are without you, if we have no hope in eternity, speak to us, Jesus. Allow us to hear you and respond in faith, hope, and repentance. Thank you for allowing this conversation to happen with Nicodemus. Thank you for allowing us to kind of stand on a periphery and and listen and watch. Thank you for recording it or having it recorded. May we learn something new from perhaps a story we've known since we were kids. And for those of us who's never heard the story before, I pray, Lord, that you would bring life to him and to her. Help us to understand what true biblical Christian discipleship is and that it begins with hearing Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.